Welcome. Riverside is a fellowship in Christ, joyfully committed to gathering for him, growing in him, and going with him. And while we still can't be together in each other's presence, it is still a delight to be able to pray and open up God's word together. I want to draw our attention this morning to the book of Matthew, chapter 7. I'll be reading verses 7 through 11. Matthew 7, our text is verses 7 through 11. Read along with me. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or, if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Let's pray this text. O Lord, our Father, your Son tells us, in fact, he invites us to come to prayer before you. And so, Father, we ask that as we think about what Jesus is doing in the midst of this sermon, inviting us to come into your presence with these petitions, we do ask that you would make us holy disciples of your Son, that as we read the Sermon on the Mount and study it, Father, that we would become like those who would model him and mimic him, Father, and be able to relate him to others, Father, as we grow into his likeness, I pray. Do that in the people of Riverside Baptist Church, I ask, Father. We also ask, Lord, that you would make us bold witnesses for the Savior, that as he has asked us to be salt and light in this world, that, Father, we would be very much so salt and light to those neighbors and friends and family who are around us, Father. And that with that, you would give us many open doors to share the gospel of Christ, even in this challenging season, Lord, where we're not around as many people as before. Father, we also ask that you would make us faithful as a church to each other, to this church at Riverside that you, would cause, that you have called us to, Lord. That, Father, we would love each other, that we would sacrifice for each other, that we would go out of our way to help each other, Father. That, Father, we would seek to show Christ to one another. Lord, help us to be faithful in this as a congregation. We also ask, Father, that you would protect us from evil temptations in our lives and sinful worries in our minds and even physical sickness with our bodies. Watch over us, Father. Meet our needs and protect us from these things we ask. We also ask that you continue to provide for every one of our needs, Father, that you'd meet our financial needs as a church, that you would meet the individual and family needs of those in our congregation, Father, who are going through some real challenging moments right now, trying to figure out how their business is going to make it or how their family is going to have enough or, Father, whether or not they'll remain healthy. Just meet our needs, we ask. We also ask that you somehow use this virus to further spread the gospel throughout this world? Would you use this in a way that we cannot now see, Father, in a way that would allow your gospel to go forth with power, Lord, and that it would transform lives? We also ask that you would remove this COVID-19 virus from this earth for many excellent reasons, Father, one of which is so that we could meet again as a church for worship with each other. We thank you for hearing our prayers we thank you for being our good, good Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I want to begin our sermon this morning by asking you a question. After two plus chapters of this Sermon on the Mount, do you feel a little bit overwhelmed? Do you feel somewhat burdened beneath the weight of Christ's teaching here? Because when we consider all that Jesus has taught us so far in this sermon, such a feeling, I think, just has to be normal. I know I feel it. Because he has been pointing us down a road that is so very challenging, a road filled with challenges that are far beyond our abilities. After hearing all that Jesus has said so far, I bet, I just bet that you have asked, how could I ever be this distinct from the world? How could I ever be this holy before God? How could I ever be the disciple that Jesus has called me to be? I want to honor him, but, but after reading all this and hearing all this from these sermons, I have to admit that this feels kind of hopeless. I wonder if that's you. At times, it has been me. Well, surely we have no hope of success if our approach to this life of discipleship is one that's on our own one in our own strength and in our own wisdom. We desperately need provision from heaven if we are ever, ever to progress at this, if we are ever to make progress on this hard road which leads to life. And what we find today is that this provision that we so desperately need has, in fact, been provided. Verses 7 through 11 do not provide a blanket invitation to fulfill our carnal wish list when we ask it of God. It does not give us a, a blanket invitation to go to God and ask Him to fulfill that carnal wish list, that list of things that we want Him to do that will make our lives easier or more comfortable. Instead, these are words of promise that when Christians pour out their hearts to their Father in spiritual need, He will provide. When taken in their context, these verses are, are not a commitment by God to meet our every desire in this world whenever we ask it. No, these are His commitment to always meet the needy requests of those who are fervently seeking to follow His Son. When we consider verses 7 through 11, in light of all of the teachings so far in the Sermon on the Mount, we realize that they are Christ's comforting words of power to weak and needy disciples. D.A. Carson, New Testament commentator, he writes in his commentary on this passage, the Sermon on the Mount lays down the righteousness, sincerity, humility, purity, and love expected of Jesus' followers. And now it assures them such gifts are theirs if sought through prayer. Jesus assures his followers 
that far from demanding the impossible, he is providing the means for the otherwise impossible. In other words, prayer is like powerful spinach to a wimpy Popeye. Prayer is like a suit of iron with rocket propulsion and superhuman abilities to a man who is made up of mere flesh and blood. Verses 7, 11, 7 through 11, they are, the, they are the how in the midst of a sermon that is full of do. They provide the necessary means after having received such pointed instruction from Christ our Lord. And my goal in this sermon is that when it's all said and done, after it's been delivered and you've had a chance to meditate and pray on it and process it, my goal in this sermon is that you would be charged to live a life of faithful prayer by recognizing the giving nature of God toward His beloved children. And I want to relate two points in this sermon today as we consider the foundation for prayer before we consider this invitation to pray. We're going to look first of all at verses 9 through 11. And the point I want to make there is that the Father gives only good things to His children. And then we're going to come back and we're going to look at verses 7 through 8, where I want to make the point that the children of the Father should ask Him for good things. So first of all, in verses 9 through 11, the Father gives only good things to His children. Look with me again at those verses. He says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for fish, for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God delights to give to his blood-bought children. He is not a begrudging God. He is not one who, is, who gives with a reluctance or even a resentment. No, God's people never need twist his arm or provoke him to try to get his attention. No, he is, he is eager. He is an eager God to show his generosity to all of those who know him in faith. And my friends, there is a simple, joyful truth that you must know today that I hope you will come away understanding today. One that I hope will be at the bedrock of your life that will be foundational to you. A truth that you must know that the Father God delights to give. He is the kind of God who makes it His joy to give to His people. He gives, first of all, life and breath to all mankind. If you are able to breathe this morning, if you're able to eat and to, to see and to hear and to function as a human being, that is all because God has given it to you. It was not yours, it was given to you, your very life. Because it says in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives 
to all mankind, life and breath and everything. The very life and the breath that we have is given to us by the Father God. And he also generously provides wisdom to his precious people. It says in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. The book of Proverbs is in agreement with this when it says in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 3, If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. When his people need discernment and insight and wisdom and life, God provides it when they ask. He also gives guidance to local churches as they make hard decisions. We're going to see this when we get to the book of Matthew in chapter 18, where it says in verse 19, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. When the church comes together and has to make some hard decisions, it will be granted, it will be given, it will be provided by the Father in heaven. Through His Spirit, He enables us to have what we need to function rightly as a church. He gives it. He also gives everything that is good in life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is, We have nothing that we did not receive. Everything has been given to us. The Apostle James says in James 1 verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good thing you have in life, everything that you enjoy, has been given to you by the Father God because... He is a giving, generous God by nature. And he has most clearly proven his nature, his giving nature, by his holy, unmatched willingness to sacrifice his son for his evil people. In verse 11, Jesus tells us something very hard but very true and very important for us to know. He says that we are evil. He says, we who are evil, us sinners before a holy God, we have fallen from Him, we've rejected Him, we've rebelled from Him, we are depraved now, we have chosen to go our own way, we are an evil people. We who are evil know Even we know how to give good gifts to our kids. But he says, God knows even more so how to provide what is good. Jesus says to his disciples, his followers who would go on after the sermon to change the world, it's even still being changed today because of the faithful testimony of those men and women. He says, you who are evil to these individuals... But then, then he tells them that in that 
very same verse, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? In other words, Christ's disciples are evil, but the Father gives them what is good. And how has the Father enabled sinners, evil people like you and me who have fallen from him in sin, how has the Father enabled sinners, even those first disciples who were sitting on that day on that hillside, how has the Father enabled his disciples to know his goodness? Well, through the sacrifice of his one and only Son. At the end of this book, in chapter 20, well, near the end of the book, it says that even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, Jesus Christ, under the title of the Son of Man, he came not to be served, but to serve us. He gave his life as a ransom for many, He gave his life to pay the price for your sins and my sins. Jesus Christ did this for us. Not to be served, but to serve. It says also, a few chapters later, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus would lay down his life, his blood would be shed upon that cross to pay the price for sins of sinners. He would lay down his life for evil people, for evil disciples who needed payment for our sin. So, what does this mean for the Christian life? It means that the God who once gave us the greatest gift will now give us everything else that we need. As verse 11 says, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? When I think about this text, I'm reminded of what Paul says, very much reminded of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Listen carefully. Paul says of God, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is an argument from greater to lesser. God has done the most incredible thing, the most incredible thing of all. He sent his son, he he gave up his son for us. His son came and paid the price, the sin debt for us. Jesus did that. God gave him up. And if God's willing to give Jesus up to do that, then the argument follows, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's already done this huge thing. Therefore, we can expect him to do all of these lesser things in our lives. He gives, and he only gives, what is good to his children. Notice how Jesus describes God's giving nature in verses 9 and 10. He says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? And then he says, If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. So Jesus relates the Father's way of, of giving to that of an earthly father. When a son asks his dad for bread, 
His father, his earthly father, will provide him with what is good and what is necessary. And he will not give him something unhelpful, like a stone instead. And when a son asks his father for a fish, his dad will not give him something dangerous, like a serpent instead of the fish. Because he wants to give his son what is good and nourishing and helpful. And if earthly dads who are sinners, have enough of God's good image in them that they still show goodness to their own children, then how much more good will the Heavenly Father show to His children? That's the argument Jesus is making. Now, I am not so foolish to think that everyone hearing this sermon today had a great earthly dad. I would guess that some people watching this message have, perhaps even today, perhaps even still, They have a sour taste in their mouths towards their earthly father. And I am fully confident that even those of us who had good dads, I am fully confident that we also had imperfect men for fathers, men who still often failed at their task. And that is exactly Jesus' point. As fallen as our earthly dads are or were, even many of them still knew to give what is good to their kids when it was needed. And arguing from lesser to greater now, Jesus says the perfect Father, the Lord God, knows perfectly well how to give what is good to His kids. When we need bread, God doesn't give us a stone. And when we need fish, God doesn't give us a serpent instead. When we ask for strength to love others as we have been commanded by Jesus in this sermon, He doesn't instead give us unhelpful things, things which would make us more self-absorbed. When we ask for humility to serve our church rightly, He doesn't provide something harmful to us, something that would make us more prideful in heart. When we ask for wisdom, God doesn't point us to the world instead. When we ask for kingdom-mindedness, He doesn't direct our focus to earthly treasures. When we ask for something good that is needed from God, He only gives us what is good in response. But understand, He does not always give precisely what we ask for. Though He always gives us what is good, it's not always exactly what we thought it would be, or even in the time frame that we had hoped it would come. Because we don't, we don't always know what is best for us, just like our kids don't always know what is best for them. We don't always know what good thing it is that we need most. And sometimes, sometimes actually, what we think is good is actually not all that good for us. Perhaps something else is needed more. And our Father is committed to only giving us what is good and what is most good in each point and time. And this requires us, when we know this, it requires us to trust in His sovereign provision. Choosing to believe that He knows best, that His mind is right, and what He's doing is what is ultimately good, even though we can't see it right now. 
Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this passage, he writes, The child is here supposed to ask for bread that is necessary, and a fish that is wholesome. But if the child should foolishly ask for a stone or a serpent, for unripe fruit to eat, or a sharp knife to play with, the father, though kind, is so wise as to deny him. We often ask that of God, which would do us harm if we had it. We know He knows this, and therefore He does not give it to us. And I love this last line here. He says, Denials in love are better than grants in anger. Denials in love are better than grants in anger. Saying no out of love, in other words, is better than saying yes out of anger. And to demonstrate this, I want to invite you to turn with me over to the book of Genesis. Keep your hand in Matthew's gospel, but go over to the book of Genesis chapter 17 with me. Genesis chapter 17. And I want you to read along with me very carefully. Chapter 17 of Genesis, verses 15 through 20. Genesis Genesis 17, verses 15 through 20 where God comes to Abraham and tells him that he would have a son and he was to name his son Isaac. Look with me at verse 15, Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I'm going to read that again, verse 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah shall be, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. All right, now let me say a few things about this. God, he wanted to do Abraham, and by extension, all people, good. God wanted to do good to Abraham and good to all people through Abraham by giving him a son named Isaac who would carry on the covenant that God had made with people of faith. But Abraham, without faith, being an old man of a hundred years with a wife of ninety years, Abraham, without any faith, couldn't see how God could bring such good about in him and through him. How God could ever bring about an actual physical son from Abraham and Sarah. And he asked God. 
In verse 18, he asked God for something else. He asked God that Ishmael might be his heir. So Abraham made a request of God. So God, in verse 19, he answered, and he answers very pointedly. He answers with the word, no. No. Because God would do something even greater through Abraham, something that Abraham did not at that point have the faith to be able to see. However, and this is what I think is extraordinary, notice how the goodness of God just kept on flowing. Abraham had asked that Ishmael Ishmael would be the heir, and God said, no, because he had something better in mind. But the goodness of God kept on flowing because in verse 20, the Lord said to Abraham, in response to his request, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. God didn't answer Abraham's prayer the way that Abraham wanted him to, or the way that Abraham felt was best. But what God did was great and good, not only for Abraham, but for all of those people who would be children of Abraham through faith in Christ. God knew what was best, and he gave what was best. But even with this... He gave Abraham even more. He also blessed Ishmael. Because that is the generous character of our God. My friend, I do not know why God is holding off on giving you that seemingly good thing that you have been pleading to him for. I don't know why. Perhaps it is to teach you or to humble you in some way, I don't know. Perhaps it's to make you so dependent upon him that you daily fall down on your face and you cry out something like, Lord, I need you, help me. And then you're forced to go and seek comfort in communion with him in his presence while you await out his answer. I don't pretend to know the mind of God in such a certain way in your life or even in my life. I don't pretend to know why he has made you wait for the thing that you have asked. But I do know that he is good. And that whatever he is doing, it is because it is what is ultimately good. Even though you and I cannot see it clearly. He deeply desires to give you precisely what is best. And you must trust him for this as his follower. So, applying all of this. If you are seeking to live as one of Christ's holy disciples, you have a Father in heaven who yearns to provide what you need. When you feel overwhelmed by the responsibilities of being a Christian, when you feel assaulted by sin and temptation, when you feel like there's just no way that you could ever go forward on this path that he has given to you, you need to remember that he is a giving God who generously seeks to provide for everything that you need. He's not a stingy God. He doesn't hold back. No, he yearns to give precisely what is needed in that situation. So don't feel helpless. Don't feel hopeless. You have a good God who loves to give to you 
if you know his son Jesus and seek to follow him. Secondly today, children of the Father should ask him for good things. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. God invites his children to pray according to promise. First of all, he he offers us an invitation to pray in three different ways. Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, and it will be given, you will find, and it will be opened to you. Jesus here invites us to beseech the Father God for all of our needs. And I like the way that Pastor John Piper explained this threefold appeal to God when he once preached this very text of Scripture. He says, Ask, seek, knock. If a child's father is present, he asks him for what he needs. If a child's father is somewhere in the house but not seen, he seeks his father for what he needs. If the child seeks and finds the father behind the closed door of his study, he knocks to get what he needs. The point seems to be that it doesn't matter whether you find God immediately close at hand, almost touchable with his nearness, or hard to see and even with barriers between. He will hear and he will give good things to you because you look to him and not another. End quote. My friends, Jesus invites us to look to God for precisely what we need as his disciples. And he grants us this access. Think of, think of all of those beatitudes that we looked at in chapter 5. Do you remember those at the beginning of chapter 5? Those beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and so forth. Those are unnatural to sinners like you and me. That is, that is not me on my own. And I would venture to guess because of God's word saying it so, that's not you on your own terms, in your own way and in your own strength. We read those Beatitudes and we're immediately convicted by the fact that so often, even as Christians, this is not us, that we have a long ways to go. So when we are struggling to have a humble, meek attitude, for instance, towards other people or towards this world in general, maybe, we are to ask, seek, and knock. Or when we are struggling with sin, or perhaps we're having a hard time finding that desire to to press on towards holiness in our lives, to be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Perhaps we're struggling with that. But we are to make a request of God by asking, seeking, and knocking. Think of the other instructions that have been given so far in this sermon. We must be salt and light in a dark world. We must 
come to terms with our brothers and sisters quickly when there is any discord between us. We must take extreme measures against lust in our hearts, in our eyes, in our lives. We must not refuse the one who would borrow from us and other good things Jesus taught. These are impossible things for people so fallen in their sinfulness as we. We need his help. And my friends, help is what he provides when we ask, seek, and knock. Notice the promise when we do in verse 8. Those who ask are receivers. And those who seek are finders. And those who knock find an open door. My friend in Christ, when you When you humbly pray, it is never ineffective. These promises are always true for the lowly Christian who comes before God with a needy spirit and asks, seeks, and knocks. He will always hear, he will always answer, and he will always provide, though in his perfect way and in his perfect time. John Calvin, in his commentary on this text, wrote, Nothing is better adapted to excite us to prayer than a full conviction that we shall be heard. Whenever we engage in prayer, or whenever we feel that our ardor in prayer is not sufficiently strong, we ought to remember the gentle invitation by which Christ assures us of God's fatherly kindness. And when we feel that we're so insignificant to even come before this God and make petitions of Him, think of what Martin Luther said in his book, The Sermon on the Mount. He writes, He knows that we are timid and shy, that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to God. We think that God is so great and we are so tiny that we do not dare to pray. That is why Christ wants to lure us away from such timid thoughts to remove our doubts and to have us go ahead confidently and boldly, end quote. Jesus invites us to pray according to promise, to consider God's good, giving, generous nature and bring our petitions to him, knowing that he will answer them, knowing that he knows best And that he will always provide what we need most. My friends, please remember that it is our Father that we are asking. Do you recall the Lord's Prayer back in chapter 6? Where Jesus said, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you remember that prayer, that exemplary prayer of Jesus? Well, in that prayer, Jesus revealed that we can now approach God as our Father. He is our tender, loving, gracious Father. Our sweet spiritual parent who formed us and saved us and now provides for us and guides us in our needs. We have the privilege of entering into dear communion with our Father. 
knowing the joys of intimacy that can only be realized before his kind face. Jesus says in verse 11, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Oh, my friends, our Father, our Father yearns to give to his precious children. If you are like me, my friends, if you're like me, and some of you perhaps were, if you're like me, you had a kind earthly father who showed love, who provided guidance, and who was accessible when I needed him or wanted just to be in his presence. I had a good dad. When I asked him, he answered. When I sought him, I found him. When I knocked on the door of his den, when I was just a little boy, where he sat behind that big old desk of his, engaged in serious study of some kind, when I would knock and I would be welcomed in, he would tell me what he was reading, what he was learning, what he was studying, because that man wanted to point me to Jesus, and he did. I had a good dad. And as glad as I am for having had him as my dad, it is shocking. It is shocking how much he pales in comparison to my Abba Father, who daily hears my feeble, dependent prayers, who spared no expense to make me his own, but provided the blood of his own son Jesus to make payment for my sin that I might be adopted into his spiritual family. Matthew Henry, he again writes, If all the compassions of all the tender fathers in the world were crowded into the bowels of one, yet compared with the tender mercies of God, they would be but as a candle to the sun or a drop to the ocean. God is more rich, he writes, and more ready to give to his children than the fathers of our flesh can be. For he is the father of our spirits and ever-loving, ever-living father. My friend, if the one known as our father is your heavenly father, then you have the perfect father who yearns to provide what's needed for every single one of his spiritual kids. My friend, how much more will he do for you? Once more, let me relate what John Piper says regarding the magnanimous nature of our Father. He says, When you pause to consider that God is infinitely strong and can do all that He pleases, and that He is infinitely righteous so that He only does what is right, and that He is infinitely good so that everything He does is perfectly good, and that he is infinitely wise so that he always knows perfectly what is right and good, and that he is infinitely loving so that in his strength and righteousness and goodness and wisdom he raises the eternal joy of his loved ones as high as it can be raised. When you pause to consider this, then the lavish invitations of this God to ask Him for good things with the promise that He will give them is unimaginably wonderful.
My friends, this is unimaginably wonderful news for you and me today, that the God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will with him graciously give us all things. If you are seeking to live as one of Christ's holy disciples, you must embark upon a life of faithful asking. You cannot do this life on your own. You cannot obey his word. You cannot accomplish his will. You cannot serve him in any good way on your own. Your only hope is to be endowed with power from on high. Your only hope is to have the spirit inside of you ignite your heart, ignite your mind, ignite your life. And one of the key ways that the spirit does that, that he puts that ignition switch into on in your mind and your heart and your life is when you go to the father and you ask him to do it. Because the Father wants you to come to him like a child in need. Because he knows that when we express that need, our joy is found, our peace is found, our rest is realized. And we get the joy of that even while the Spirit, in our dependence, ignites us to go forward in his name. If you are ever to be the kind of person who is meek and humble, if you are ever to be the kind of person who longs for righteousness in this world, if you were ever to be the kind of person who shines brightly as light for King Jesus and acts as salty distinction, distinctiveness in this world around us, then you must ask for it. It must become a gigantic part of your life to be in petition before God, asking Him to work in your life. If you're seeking to live as one of Christ's holy disciples, you must embark upon a lifelong quest to be an asker and a seeker and a knock-making man who goes to the door and repeatedly says, Father, again, I need you. Again, Lord, I need your help. Would you please open up to me? And every time that you do, he opens up and says, Come, my son, enter, my daughter. Tell me what is your need. And he provides it. The Father gives only good things to His children. And children of the Father must ask Him for good things. So commit to a life of faithful, prayerful dependence. Commit to a life that sees yourself as wholly insufficient and dependent upon Him, going to Him constantly in prayer that you might have what you need to live a life in his service. Let's pray. Lord, I rejoice that we can open up your word again today. I rejoice for the truth of it. I rejoice, Father, for the privilege of being able to know you through it. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us such access to you, Father, as it's related to us in your word through your son, Jesus, Lord. That if we know Jesus as our Savior, if we've repented of our sins and believed in him, Father, not only are our sins are forgiven, and not only are we righteous now in your sight, but Father, we have access to you as adopted sons and daughters. And Father, we can be heard by you, and you will answer us faithfully. Oh, what a high privilege this is to know you as Lord, God, and Father. I pray that you would bless the people of your church that you would, Lord, 
satisfy us in the truth of your word, that you would build us up in its strength. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me send you out with this word from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. May we ever pray that our God would make us worthy of his calling and that he would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. You are sent.